and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Amy Edmondson is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School, which is a chair established to support the study of human interactions that lead to the creation of successful enterprises that contribute to the betterment of society. And in today's conversation, we certainly talk about Harvard, what it's like to work on a college campus, what it's like to be specifically at that college campus during this time in 2023 as we record today's conversation. Uh, Amy has been recognized by the biannual Thinkers 50 Global Ranking of Management Thinkers since 2011 and most recently was ranked number one in 2021. She's received that organization's Breakthrough Idea Award in 2019 and Talent Award in 2017. She studies teaming, psychological safety, which is going to be a core concept and competency that you've probably heard about at some point if you study 
environments and teams and groups. And we're going to talk about the famous Aristotle study that Google did that found that psychological safety was the number one factor in determining team success. So this is definitely a deep dive into that concept and something that hopefully you can take with your teams and organizations. She also studies organizational learning and her articles have been published in numerous academic and management outlets, including Administrative Science Quarterly, Academy of Management Journal, Harvard Business Review, and California Management Review. She's written many books, so we're going to talk about The Fearless Organization, which she read, which she wrote in 2019. We're going to talk about her latest book, The Right Kind of Wrong. So a lot of this conversation about is about mistakes and failures, and I recommend you check out that book. And she's also wrote, written books around this concept of teaming, so teaming to innovate and extreme teaming as well. At her core, you're going to find Amy to be humble but brilliant. You're going to find her to be nuanced and thoughtful when it comes to psychology and the science of humans. And she is someone that I feel as though, even though she's got all these accolades, I could have talked to forever. So here is the wonderful Amy Edmondson. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Big fan of your work. Uh, I'm sure you hear that a lot, but I figured I would start there and just acknowledge that. But I actually wanted to go to a moment. Uh, I'm based in Washington, D.C., and when I was reading your latest book, you talk about a moment in your career where you're in Washington, D.C., you're meeting with the then Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, and you're in a room with Carol Dweck, who's also somebody who I think we're all fans of her work uh, and has changed how people think about mindset. And you're in this room with Carol and yourself and Carol's focused on mindset and you're focused on learning environments. And there's a paragraph in the book where you say, gosh, since that day, I've been wondering how learning environments and mindsets reinforce each other. And since I've read your book, I've been wondering about what you're wondering about <laughs> regarding mindsets and environments. So perhaps we can start there and we can yeah. even use it in terms of education and, and how we're thinking about education, but we can zoom out to business as you do in the book a little bit. So take that where you want to take it, but how do you think about mindsets and their interactions and reinforcing of learning environments? I think it's a really great issue to talk about and a great place to start. So a, a mindset is something that happens inside your head. I mean, it's it's an approach. It's an orientation. And I am a huge fan of, of, of Dweck's work on mindset. And I, of course, was aware of it before we met, but that that um, was just such a um, such an invigorating conversation. So a mindset is an orientation um, and and you know a learning environment is the context that that is created uh, that, that that is created by people that emerges out of their shared interactions and it seems obvious but that that sort of how we approach our situations and the environments we find ourselves in are related and mutually reinforcing both both for good or for bad and so if if you are in a you know if you're in if you have a fixed mindset and you're very anxious about how you will be seen, and you're anxious not to disprove in your own and others' minds that you're capable, um, you will be very reluctant to take risks. And your environment will never have the chance to show you that it's okay. And so it's yin and yang. You can't have one, I mean, you, you can't just focus on one and not be interested in the other, I think. Academics, 
have this, you know, need to get very narrow and 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 as deep as possible, but reality is much richer and more interesting. If you take us just to academics for a minute, because you live in an academic world and higher ed, I've got two small kids who are been beginning their education journey. And I'm so curious about education and how we think about it. So you're in a room with Arne Duncan. What are some of the messages you provide him as it relates to environments and how we should think about learning environments? And I love your work because you talk about systems and the importance of systems and their impact on us. So take us there into the room. What advice or research are you citing as it relates to our education system and perhaps how we can make it a little bit better than it was a year ago? Well, I'll I'll start by saying I, I think Carol's work is more central and you know critical for K through 12 environments, which is where where his where the secretary's focus um, was primarily. Um, and I suppose as as we were talking, my work is in a sense more important for school leadership and teacher meet teacher groups and you know the the um, the the sort of curriculum committees and all of the um, you know all of the ways the school is run to create an optimal learning organization and learning environment for the kids. It is also the case that I think a psychologically safe environment in the classroom, whether for K through twelve or for higher ed, is is mission critical for for learning and learners because that that describes the kind of environment where people. Um, believe they can take risks, you know, raise their hand, even if they're not 100% sure they've got the right answer, take that risk, the risk of being wrong, and truly believe they won't be humiliated or scolded by the teacher or laughed at by their classmates, right? And and so, so psychological safety applies to all of those different contexts. Anywhere there's more than one person creating something, creating the conditions for something like learning to happen, uh, psychological safety becomes relevant and it's either higher or lower depending on many of the different uh, behaviors and decisions made by, by those people. So we'll just introduce this concept of psychological safety, which I'm sure it sounds like you're still passionate talking about it after after all these years. I think you first wrote about it in 1999, and uh, the definition in one of your books, I forget which one, is shared belief held by members of a team that the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. And I want to go to higher ed for a minute, because we're at a moment where I remember I had Sian Bylock on the podcast and Sian talked about, she's the president now at Dartmouth and, and talked about how we need to create safety, but you know, this idea of safe spaces, um, not being spaces where you're going to be challenged or places where you're going to hear something that you might disagree with. I'm thinking about right now as we record this, look, I'm Jewish. I've been to Israel seven times in my life. I've spent a lot of time in Israel. Um, and yet as a Jew, I have to say, like being on campuses beyond Harvard, Harvard's getting a lot of attention right now, but beyond Harvard, there's this question right now around safety. And yes. how, how do we create psychologically safe environments to take risks, to spark debate, to have dialogue, yeah. but not make people afraid for their lives, right? Like, and there's, yeah, there's well, this dynamic at play on campuses. So I don't know how much you're thinking about that as it relates to the tension that's existing 
throughout our country and throughout the world, but especially on campuses and how you think about that. Uh, Brian, I think about it all the time. And let, let's back up. Let's back up to before October 7th. And just in an, in an ongoing way, this has been a big issue. The sort of the the confusion, there's, there's several things I think we need to talk about. And one is that, you know, the confusion that people have or the 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 conflating of safe spaces and psychological safety in a funny way, they're really quite different, almost at odds, right? Almost two different, two opposing ideas rather than, than compatible ideas. The safe space in the education context, especially has been thought of as a place where, you know, you'll have a trigger alert. Um, there will be nothing. You, you almost have a promise that there'll be nothing said here that you find upsetting. Um, that is, I, I, I fully can, can agree with the idea that there are some, there is a need for some context like that. Um, I think classrooms are rarely the right context, uh, for that. Uh, and, uh, and maybe so like a counseling, like in, with the psychologist, yeah, maybe in a counseling or in, you know, maybe we could have a, a sort of a, a support group, you know, that is really d deliberately clinical and, and developmental and, and is meant to perhaps raise, um, you know, raise, increase the capability that people have to deal with threats and do so quite carefully and cautiously because of maybe trauma. And, and, and I think that's, you know, I think that's very important. And I think, we need to have learning spaces be ones where where it's it's safe in the sense that it's not the real world right we're 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 behind closed doors trying to learn together as fallible human beings who will make mistakes who will occasionally inadvertently especially say things that others find offensive without in you know the the aim would not have been to cause offense the aim would have been to you know to to say to express yourself in a way that you did not know right that's ignorance rather than uh cruelty and so classrooms um can be an environment where uh people can take risks and and occasionally I mean, failures will happen right? failures in the sense of you know uh deep misunderstandings people getting upset conflict and through those, we we will learn and grow and and get be get to be better versions of ourselves. So 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 issue number one is that that safe space and psychological safety are a little bit in tension. Um, issue number two is there has not been enough discussion, certainly not by me and maybe others, and I'm really determined to do better on on respect and skill, two, two different concepts, right? But so psychological safety is almost, uh, for me, it's always been about helping people take their foot off the brake. So they're not holding, you know, they're not holding especially work relevant ideas, concerns, questions, mistakes back, because when they hold back, the team can't learn, the organization can't perform. Um, but that is, not the same as saying, you know, unleash all your prejudicial thoughts, right? And that that to me, it's it's either, well, it's it's a combination of skill and maturity, thoughtfulness, where people can uh, and 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 respect, you know, respect is about truly appreciating that other people are, uh, you know, are people just like you are, right? They're, they, 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 they need and deserve your respect. They aren't objects. 
they are others, right? They are, it's thou, not it. Um, and I don't think we've been doing a good enough job, or at least the evidence would suggest that we have not been doing a good enough job in recent times of teaching people how to be curious and curious in a respectful way and realize how much they stand to gain from interest, you know, interest in others and learning about others. If you're asking me questions now, I'm doing my best to answer and we're, we're learning more in, 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 in the process. And that's, you know, the, the day you decide you don't need to learn anymore and your mind is made up and your opinions about various people and groups are made up is, is, you know, is the day you, you cease to grow. And, um, it's not a, it's not a good day. There's a couple of things I want to pull on and there's a lot that I want to pull on, but a couple that I'll just highlight the idea of ignorance. I think first cruelty or the intention somewhere along our, our journey here as a society, we got into this idea that ignorance, ignorance is guilt. And, yes. you know, I, I think ignorance is the opportunity to learn. Like I, right. I am ignorant. That's why we're right. having this conversation. Right. I, have, I can read your stuff in a book. Uh, I can listen to you on a podcast and I still am ignorant. I actually, in my last podcast I recorded, I tried to explain some of your concepts and I failed miserably <laughs> at, at the explanation because it's not, I'm not seeped in the work like you are. And so colleges should be seeped in ignorance. There should be ignorance all over the place. That's the whole idea of being there and intention and ignorance. You know, when you're talking to someone, whether their intent is pure. Like, I'm sorry, yes. we interact with people. We tend yep. to have a sense of that. And we have enough emotional intelligence to know, I think. Um, and then, Some are better than yeah, others, I believe. Some are. Some right? are. It's not, not my area of work, but it turns out, you know, that there are there are real differences in our in people's ability to sort of detect emotions and lying, both both two two separate things. That's an interesting piece. And I wonder about that for myself because when do we give people the benefit of the doubt and when are yep. we skeptical or cynical? Right. And I've even been around people that are con artists and I know they're a con artist, but I still can keep them at bay. Uh, but that's a whole story for another day. Yes. The, other, the other piece that you're getting to is respectful. And when I heard you, I heard you basically say underneath respect is actually curiosity. And if we are curious towards someone Perhaps that is a level of respect that is then sharing to try to understand and be empathetic from where they're coming from. And so I'm curious about which comes first, because traditionally we would say respect our elders, right? Don't yes. don't question them or the military for years would say just respect authority. And now the military has changed right. that quite a bit. And hey, ask questions if you see something, you know, that doesn't look yeah. right. We want you to speak up. There's there's this dynamic at play of respect and curiosity. And I think about my children. I want them to be curious um, instead mm -hmm. of just respectful. And I want yeah. that curiosity be, to be done with respect, right? So I can ask a question in a respectful manner. And I had I had clients that I was working with today, they're partners in a business. And they say, we want people to challenge us, but we still want them to do it in a respectful manner. There's a way right. in which we go about doing that. So maybe we pull on respect, curiosity, and this idea of ignorance a little bit. A little yes, bit. you know, and I think it's... Um... It's interesting because a word like respect, which is a lot is similar to the word trust, um, 
has has multiple facets and different meanings. And you know, if you use the 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 meaning of respect that is, you know, respect your elders, like which is essentially the opposite of curiosity, right? You should just go along with whatever they say because they're elders or because you're higher in the military hierarchy than than I am. My my job is just to follow. Um, but respect to me is something. Um, Maybe it's 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 it also includes being realizing that you are not the center of the universe that you know that you have a valid point of view and a valid set of experiences in your life that that are have you know have taught you a lot and given you some maybe strong views about things, um, but those views are necessarily incomplete, and you are you truly respect the other's ability to have different views because they've had different experiences. They've grown up in different environments and your desire to learn more about that, I believe is a form of respect. And as you said, there is, there's that overlap with curiosity, but it's um, I think it's, it starts with a, a recognition that others are, you know, every bit as important as human beings as you are and that's you know that's not something that comes naturally to a toddler right it, but it's something that we we grow and and as we grow and as we as we become more mature part of that process is to understand that you're not the most important person around and and one of my favorite things to do when i read books is to go to the acknowledgement section and in your acknowledgement section i'm both fearless organization and the right kind of wrong. You talk about your husband, George, and uh, there, I actually think you use the same line in both uh, acknowledgements around humility and huh. uh, the humility to take some of your work and help him be successful in his journey. And I found that interesting that it existed in both acknowledgement sections. Uh, I think fearless organization you dedicated to him and then uh, the right kind of wrong you dedicated to your children. And there was a line in the acknowledgement section as we think about respect, curiosity, these words that are massive. Uh, yeah. But there was a word in there that was confidence. And you said you said you wanted to thank George for giving you confidence. And that struck me um, as a reader because here you are, Harvard educated, uh, you know, successful in terms of literature and research and in your work and have gotten awards and yet you're thanking someone else for helping you feel maybe not you're that like you're the center of the universe but that you matter oh, and that you're special yeah, that you matter wow actually that's it I, the word i love the word matter. i mean that, that you matter right that others matter you know that uh, and that's i think that's the heart of it it's like that that um i believe i think we all want to feel that we matter and that's why a lot of the research on happiness and longevity uh, comes back to relationships right do we do we have genuine relationships and genuine i mean reciprocal mutual right? that, that we have a um we each care about the other you know close friendships maybe life partners but 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 um but as for george and confidence you know he is um a scientist uh, you know a, a scientist in the biological fields he's a stem cell scientist so somehow as a social scientist you know i've got that um inferiority 
thing going, you know, when I, when you live with a so-called real scientist. So um, I really do mean that very, like it, it, it matters to me that someone who has run a, a, a big and successful scientific laboratory in an academic setting, and now is Dean of a medical school, you know, it's, it's like, that's, that's a real job, right? Whereas, whereas, you know, mine has been the sort of, you know, ivory tower job. So, so if someone who's actually doing those things finds these ideas useful and practical, practical, then um, that gives me confidence. Let's stay there for a minute. I'm hearing my uncle Bob, who's a psychologist, PhD, and his brother is a medical doctor and their <laughs> mother would say to him, you're not a real doctor, right? And, and I can hear her uh, telling him that. And I was just talking to someone about this the other day. First of all, I think people with MDs don't think people with PhDs are, are qualified enough. People with PhDs, society, and then a society with a master's, and the master's with a bachelor, and a bachelor with a high hierarchy. school diploma. It's hierarchy, and, and it's not always a matter of the letters as far as intelligence, but we definitely need systems to make sure that people are qualified. So it's an and. But I want to go to this idea, which I've been wondering about around psychology and around the quote-unquote soft sciences or social science sciences. Should we compare the two or would the world of psychology be better off just owning the space that they're in yes. and saying that it's different and that's okay? I think, yeah, you said yes. From um, your lips, <laughs> right? It, it's um, uh, actually Chris Ardris, who was a, a very important mentor of mine or influence, uh, influence on my thinking, um, really thought we had gone astray, we, the, the social scientists, when we... You know, we want it when we try to emulate the physical scientists, for example, and 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 his view inherited from one of his mentors, uh, Kurt Lewin, was, you know, people in our field ought to be able to show that something works. I mean, I guess that's true in a scientific laboratory, too, but it's a very different environment. We ought to be we ought to immerse ourselves in the phenomena that we study, deeply understand it you know, hypothesize about it, do our best to measure various things, uh, but not get um, caught up in the measures. You know, the, we can we can um, put the measures on a pedestal as if they were the point when in fact they are very thin representations of the phenomena that we're interested in and trying to trying to alter. You know, so you and I are talking about you know maturity and wisdom and and respect and the very real human challenge of interacting with other people, especially those from different groups who may have you know may have somehow developed negative stereotypes about another group. Like these are really hard problems, and we ought to just roll up our sleeves and do the very best we can to shed insight and help change these very hard problems. Yeah, I was talking to a client. So I do mainly executive coaching. So I'm I'm having these wonderful conversations with these brilliant people. And one of my clients recently lost uh, their father. And um, we were talking about the, what do people say on their deathbeds? And they all talk about relationships. They all talk about family, friends, relationships. And business 
I, I come from a sports background, business, sports. These things are zero sum in a way. It's winning and losing. It's how much money, revenue, and you can measure it. And it's it's very clean and clear in that way. Um, but what drives those things are humans that are very complicated and complex. And relationships are complicated and complex. No relationship is perfect. There's imperfect right. human with imperfect human and you try to do the best you can. And on our deathbed, we're thinking about that imperfect human that influenced us in a profound way. And what if we just went in that world and appreciated the complexity that is humans and the mind and the soul and the spirit or whatever you want to attach it to and sat in that and just appreciated it. And if the world was just black and white and zero sum, how fun would that be? How great of a life would that be? It'd probably be not that fulfilling not because that it's, not, it's not that complicated. Like relationships and complicated elements of relationships are actually what makes us feel alive. And what if we embrace that? And to your point, we can still do research and still try to figure things out and be rigorous in our exploration. But to compare it, 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 get, it, it almost makes it uh, less valuable because it, it, Right. diminishes that it isn't a zero sum, that it isn't black and white, that it has nuance and it has complexity. I think that's I think that's exactly right. No, no one on their deathbed ever said, I wish I'd closed another deal or, you know, won another baseball game or it's it's all it's the the meaningful memories and the regrets have to do with other humans. So we're in like a vulnerable place, I think, in this conversation. And you talk <laughs> about vulnerability quite a bit. And I'm sure when you signed up for this podcast, you didn't think we were going to start with, you know, seeing our Duncan and then talk about yeah. college campuses and then no, talk about no. your husband. Uh, but vulnerability and psychological safety are are something that I've thought a lot about because Brene Brown's work, which you reference in your in your book around vulnerability, is is amazing and it's incredible and linking vulnerability to courage and it, it's just really really powerful stuff. Yeah. And yet, I think you have this quote in your book where you say vulnerability is a fact. And that, when I read that, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, hold on. All right, vulnerability is a fact. Now let's talk about psychological safety and what happens if someone shows up vulnerable, but they don't have psychological safety in their environment. And I've often wondered like, all right, are we telling people to be vulnerable? Okay, cool. But if I'm vulnerable in a not psychologically safe environment, I get my ass fired and, and so, I get hurt and I get hurt. Yeah. Worse. yeah. Or, or uh, I don't get fired, but I get hurt. Right. Yeah. No, this is um, there. There's something, I think something very, important and obvious about psychological safety, um, which is th there's an asymmetry, um, which is that if, you know, if I'm in a work environment with, and I'm, I'm assuming, or I, I, I have a reasonable experience or expectation that it's okay for me to speak up, especially with work relevant ideas, concerns, questions, you know, all the rest. And I do it and I don't get a bad reaction. Right? Boss is fine. Or my colleagues are fine. Then I'm going to do it again, right? And and I'm going to I'm going to just I I learned you know in a small way just that little it could either be you know it could be a very positive reinforcement or it could just be neutral, but so long as I don't feel really hurt or scared or humiliated as a result of my little risk, no big deal. I'm going to do it again. So life goes on. Meanwhile, let's say another situation. I'm in a similar environment. I speak, I take a risk and 
someone just laughs at me or, or, or someone says, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Or they said, I can't believe you don't know that, right? That is going to be, oh gosh, you know, that was unexpected. That was problematic. It's a little bit painful. And now I am not going to try again, right? So that asymmetry means psychological safety is always at risk of being destroyed. It's like almost the best you can do is sort of don't blow it. But one one strike and you're sort of out, right? What one, you know, one kind of problematic reaction to an earnest request for help, let's say, is going to make that person and others who observed it now much more risk averse than they were before. It's a there's a there's a you know, there's a challenge here where where psychological safety um in a sense um you really need to be good about your responses to, and I think most people are, right? But but it's easy to have a kind of, I don't know, you just can have one one inept boss or something and and it, it can harm it. Now, vulnerability, as you said, I do write it, it's a fact. I think of vulnerability as a fact, and this is more of an individual issue, right? Each and every one of us is vulnerable. We we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what others are going to do. We don't know who's going to win the next election, right? We we're we're super vulnerable, and the question, but especially in our interpersonal relationships, right? It, yes, you may get hurt by someone. That's just a fact. But if we accept it and come clean with it and sort of are open and honest about it then paradoxically, we're stronger, not weaker. Right? If I'm unwilling to confront my vulnerability, I'm unwilling to admit my vulnerability, then I'm at more risk for those kind of unhappy surprises. I'm struck by this idea of psychological safety and physical safety. And mm. are there parallels? And I looked, Israel is just top of mind for me. And I'm thinking, you know, when I'm in Israel, it's very clear as soon as you get off the plane, Physical safety is the number one thing they care about, and they are going to do whatever it takes to make sure that you're not going to do something to their country. Well, here we are, October 7th, and their physical safety has just been completely ruined. And and what is the reaction to that? And if you talk to people in Israel, they're they're furious with their government um, right. and they're furious with a lot of things because the number one thing they value is safety and security. Right. And that right. now has been threatened. And we don't have to go into all of the nuance of that situation, but it's an example of physical safety yes. being threatened. Um, or if someone is sexually assaulted, their physical safety has been threatened. Or if someone is robbed at gunpoint or their house is broken into, their physical safety might be threatened. And so I'm curious about like the response physiologically to that and psychologically yeah. uh, when our security and safety might get rocked. And how that might be similar to an aggression at work that is more psychological and how that makes us show up in the physiological compared to the psychological when it comes to safety and security. Well, so there's there's two uh, places we could go with that. And 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 one is just I'll, I'll I'll backtrack for a moment and say in my early research was really related to physical safety because it was about medication errors in the hospital context. And 
So, and then I've been in many factories and so on. And I've, I've looked at this relationship between psychological safety and physical safety or worker safety, primarily around the issue of, of when people don't speak up about tentative hazards or possible concerns, ambiguous threats, then physical safety incidents that could have been avoided happen, right? And and in right kind of wrong, I talk about that a little bit too. It's like one of the things I am not a fan of is preventable physical, you know, harm, right? When, when physical harm could be prevented, let's prevent it. And quite often that requires psychological safety to do it. But then the other sort of interesting related topic here is that um, neuroscience research suggests that some of the same neurons are firing when we get a psychological harm or assault, um, like you're rejected by by a group of friends, as you know, as a kid, or or um, you know, so, some some other kind of just real um, painful slight. Um, it's the same neurological response as for a physical harm. Right? So the, these things are clearly far more interconnected than. Um, you know, then we tend to think as 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 lay people, right? That that um, so so let's you know if you are now if you are suddenly in a situation where where and you, most of us don't think about our physical safety day in and day out, you know, but 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 when you're suddenly in a situation where you are thinking about that, I suspect that state of of heightened fear really affects you in a variety of ways, and including narrowing the cognition right narrowing your ability to think creatively and 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 solve problems um effectively narrowing your ability and willingness to speak up you know there's just a everything gets smaller yeah i like the idea of narrow and broad and our creativity needs broad, broad. strokes right uh and decision making often we need to go broad before we go narrow and i'm wondering in my own, now I bring me into it. There have been times where I like to think I'm a, a good collaborator and a good thought partner when I'm working with other people, but I could see there are times where might I might deliver feedback or I might share something with someone and it causes them to maybe shrink. And perhaps I'm reducing their, their psychological safety to bring an idea to me in the future. I certainly have been on the other end of that. In college, I can remember professors that made me feel that way. And all of a sudden I was like, whoa, I don't feel comfortable raising my hand in your class anymore. And so if I am the one who actually caused the psychological safety to be reduced for a team member, what advice do you have for me to try to to try to rebuild that and replenish it so yeah. that we can now be in an environment going forward that's more conducive? And we're going to get into mistakes and failure, which is really mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. right, right kind of wrong. And, and there's space for that. But let's stay on psych safety here. I'm going to give a couple more nuggets that you give with the definition, because I gave a brief definition, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Sure. The other bullets that you say is a sense of confidence that the team will not uh, embarrass, reject, or punish someone for speaking up, which you've hit on in, in mm -hmm, some degree. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then it describes a team climate characterized by interpersonal trust and mutual respect. There's that word in which people are comfortable being themselves. So if I ruin yeah. that for somebody, whether yep. it's my kids, my partner, well, or someone I work with, what, what do I do from there? I think ruin is too strong a word, right? In, in a way, all of it, we need to set the stage 
um, in the, the the important groups in our lives, our families, our our work teams, you know, our friends, you know, we we want to make sure we're on the same page around our our fallibility, right? So, uh, I will occasionally, uh, you might say, I mean, we all might say, make make a mistake, right? I'll say something hurtful I did not mean, or I'll be trying to give helpful feedback and you won't hear it that way. I promise you that will happen, right? Somehow getting, sometimes getting out ahead of it can, can, can lessen the blow because really it goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is the difference between intention and impact. We as humans are very prone to, you know, we, we, we know the impact. I know the impact you just had on me. And my mind immediately jumps to, if it was a negative impact, that was your intention, right? I just attribute bad intentions to you at the, you know, at the speed of light. Whereas um, if you do something like really nice, I probably understandably will attribute good intentions. And we can learn to sever that automatic automatic conclusion, right? We can We can learn to pause and challenge it like oh that didn't feel good but you know i i uh, i know you and i know you wouldn't you know you're you're i know brian he's trying to be helpful right so you know you we this is when you have a good friendship you don't immediately go to okay i'm never talking to her again right you go to well what was that and i'd like to understand it better and and so uh, you know, I, I I think, um, but what do you do, right? What do you do when you have stepped in it, right? When you have delivered a message that landed wrong or when you have inadvertently, you didn't even know there was something someone was sensitive about and you've made a joke about it or or, or something. And I think it's the, um, the short and not very interesting answer is you apologize sincerely. None of this, well, I'm sorry, but I didn't know you were so sensitive or you, you sort of say, I, I, um, you know, you, you, you want to repair. You want to repair the the ruin, the rupture, and you, you, um, you know, you, you say you, you must take accountability. You sort of, you, you, you notice what happened. Um, you say, I'm so sorry. Um, if, if relevant, you, you make amends. You know, what can I do? You, um, you own your own part. I, I, um, I just realized I. I said something hurtful. I did. I I didn't mean to do that. And you move forward. But it's it's um it's almost an instinct to it with the apology. Try to try to dodge responsibility, and and then that makes a not very good apology. When I think about hurting someone, I think of their feelings. I hurt your feelings, and we were talking about earlier physiological safety and psychological safety. We we were talking about the mind, and you went into hey in the brain, it's a similar spot where you feel where, where that happens. But I'm curious about emotions. And I would say there are two elements that I feel as though I did not get great education when I studied sports psychology. One was around systems and the power of systems. We were very focused on the cognitive behavioral approach and how your mind impacts your body. I don't think we've really fully got into emotion and how emotion plays a mm. role in, in performance. Uh, and the systems and the systems that we create. So I've been really interested in emotions and I've been really interested in organizational yeah. psychology because I think those two play a role and sometimes we go right to the head and we don't realize the environment or the system and we don't always realize the emotion. Have you done any research around emotion as it relates to psychological safety? Because when I think of psychological, I go to the head, yeah. but I yeah. wonder it's 
I feel safe. I feel like I can speak up. I feel as though I can share. I feel embarrassed. I feel confident. There's an emotional element to that environment when it's when it's psychologically safe. There is. And I guess, you know, I have not done formal research on this. My, I think some of, some of my um, early influences before I even went to graduate school um, were um, stem from a cognitive behavior psychiatrist named Maxie Maltzby, who was a sort of advisor to the, to the, to one of my mentors, to a company I worked for. And his premise and and sort of many psychologists premise are that we, our emotions are a very, you know, almost automatic response to how we're thinking about the situation. Right? So your emotions will be quite negative and intense. You know, if you're thinking about a particular situation, you know, you're late for a meeting, you know, you're late for a meeting and suddenly you're telling yourself, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make the sale. You know, I'm going to lose my job. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to die. Right. And, and, and so you, you're, you're, you're going to feel scared. You're going to feel angry. You're going to, whatever it is, you're going to feel, it's going to be very intense, but it's, it's a direct reflection of the explanatory cognition that you have layered onto the situation, but it happens so fast that we are, we sort of feel like the situation itself caused it, right? You said that you made me feel angry. No, I made myself feel angry because of the way I thought about what you said, right? And it is a choice. It's not a choice I'm making consciously, but I could choose to be just kind of puzzled by what you said, right? Instead of angry, I could choose to say, huh, I wonder what's going on for Brian today, right? And, and that would be what a cooler head would do. So I think emotions are incredibly important, incredibly powerful in shaping our human experiences they they can get out of control quite easily and i mean create some of the you know tragic and and globally problematic things that we were talking about earlier and probably the most important capacity that people can learn in sports and in life is how to tame their emotions right Not, we don't want to be i don't want to be spock right we don't want to be emotion free but we want to have our we want to have our feelings not not have our feelings have us right yeah i love the idea of like do you have sadness or does sadness have you do you have anger or does anger have you do you have alcohol or does alcohol have you right you can you can put it through that lens and the way i've come to understand it is we have primary thoughts and primary feelings those don't necessarily need to be tied to our action. So I can feel angry and mm. I could understand it and locate it, but that doesn't mean I then have to act with anger. Right. Um, or I could have a thought of jealousy, but that doesn't mean I have to then go and act on the jealousy or whatever yes. the primary thought or primary feeling is. Right. So your emotions can simply be data, right? That, that, that they're telling you something. And sometimes they're telling you, you know, watch out. Maybe this isn't a great situation for you to be in. Or, And sometimes they're telling you, hmm, there might be something going on that I better understand more. Um, so we do want to pay attention. And we want, you know, emotional intelligence is a really important capability. And it's that, that capability to notice our own emotions, to notice other people's emotions, and to and to pay attention and to and to and to use them thoughtfully, but not um, to, but not to mistake them for the boss. So when someone brings up the project Aristotle 
research that Google did? How does that make you feel? Grateful. <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, I had been doing research, you know, academic research, many papers and so forth. Um, and, you know, I, the, the, the construct of psychological safety had gotten a fair amount of attention in the academic literature, but I would not say it had gotten a fair amount of attention in the, in the um, sort of corporate world or mainstream mainstream. Exactly. And, and Google's project Aristotle, which essentially was, you know, multi-year study, many, many variables. And the conclusion was psychological safety was the biggest determinant of, of variance in performance in, in their teams. Um, that got a lot of publicity that got a lot of attention and that made a lot of people curious about psychological safety. What is it? You know, how do you get it? And it was after that study and after my recognizing that people really thought it was interesting that I wrote the fearless organization. So I, I you know, if that hadn't happened, if project Aristotle hadn't happened, um, we, you and I would not be having this conversation. I bet. Did they reach out to you as they were coming no. up with that? So no, so like a quick background, they're studying, you know, why are teams successful at Google? And they're thinking it's the who or the roles and responsibilities. Yeah. And, background and they, education yeah. levels. Nope. They settle on norms, and one of the norms that they really recognize is really around Amy's work, around psychological safety. It's the same sort of construct that she had discovered, which causes teams, which can help teams thrive. And and so did you first read about it in Charles Duhigg's article? Is that how you found out about it? And so you're reading this article in The New Yorker, and Charles is a wonderful writer, and he's been on this podcast, and amazing author, and power of habit, amazing book. Um, But you're reading reading this article, someone forwards it to you, like, how do you even find out? No, well, I'm scared. I'm a little scared, actually, because it comes, you know, it's, we have the New York Times delivered on Sundays, and, you know, there it was, it was the annual work issue, New York Times Magazine, and you know, I flip through because I'm interested in work. Obviously, I study work. And lo and behold, here's the headline, what Google learned from its quest to build the perfect team, why some work groups thrive and others falter. And my heart sank because, you know, Google, uh, this is my area of expertise. They've just scooped me, obviously. And worse, you know, it's Sunday and I'm going to go to work on Monday. And I imagine people will have expect, expect me to have read this article. And it's really long right? Long, long, long. But fortunately, it's very well written and very engaging. But it isn't until about halfway through or maybe a third of the way through, it felt like a long time. It's like, well, what is it? You know, what's the, what's the, what's the secret sauce? And when I, I mean, I laughed out loud because when, when, you know, when Rosofsky and her colleagues found the concept of psychological safety, it said in academic papers, right, um, everything fell into place. And I'm like, wait, did I, you know, you sometimes think you've made something up on the page. And it's like, no, that's what the page says. And and on the online version, which I then went to, you could click through and get to my original academic paper, which was 17 years earlier. So that's a very long gestation rate. But no, I was I was um, astonished. So astonished is different than grateful, right? So now looking back, well, grateful, I mean, great. Well, that in that moment, I was astonished because you know I had nothing to do with it. I'm not I'm not influencing the, you know, the um, the jury, the data in any way, shape, or form. I'm a million miles away, and so it's just a beautiful, you know, triangulation, I guess, and. 
And I mean, I'd been talking about it a lot in, in executive education classrooms. It wasn't that I didn't have contact with, but it was, I think you wouldn't find too many people who didn't have contact with me or maybe had gotten around the healthcare world a little bit um, talking about this. And then after that, that changed and especially like tech and so on. But, but grateful is, I mean, if that hadn't, if, if they hadn't done that, then um, I wouldn't have realized that there was a message here that could and should be told more broadly for a managerial audience and, and coaches and consultants and managers, executives and so forth. So then I wrote the fearless organization and, you know, just, it put it on the map. So I'm grateful. Words like grit, growth mindset, emotional intelligence, you referenced earlier and Daniel Goleman sort of made that popular. Uh, grit, of course, Angela Duckworth made popular. We talked about Carol Dweck. Buzzword, right? When, when you see psychological yeah. safety and it's just a thing. I think if I were to interview all three of those people, they would say it's been misinterpreted in, in yes. some way or Malcolm Gladwell in yes. 10,000 hours, right? Or right. We, we could go on and on. Like the, it's almost as if we grab a hold of one thing and then we create a narrative around said, said thing. And you sort of deciphered between psychological safety and a safe space and how those maybe get uh, blended together when you look at them as very different. What do you think about grabbing something and making it a, a buzzword and the value of that, but what's the downside of, of oh, yeah. when we do that? Well, the downside is that we oversimplify it. I mean, a, a buzzword is, is almost necessarily simplified, too simple. And, and, and with, in particular with, with psychological safety, but safe space was part of it, but the broader confusion was just, oh, that means we have to be nice to each other. Well, kind maybe, but being nice is often code for don't say what you really think, right? So that's the direct opposite. And other people sort of saw it as, okay, this is nice for learning, but, you know, sometimes we really have to perform well, so then we can't have it. It's like, no, 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 right? It's, it's in fact, in knowledge era, it psychological safety is essential for performance, at least especially for interdependent work. So the 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 misunderstanding has been largely around being nice being comfortable rather than being learning oriented and and risk being willing to take the interpersonal risks that learning requires i i i've spent a lot of time with sports teams and in sports the one thing that every coach will say their team needs to have is competitiveness and they'll say if you're not a competitor, you're not going to survive on our team. Like you just have to have this willingness to compete when we put the ball out there. Mm -hmm. And I know you mm -hmm. played basketball. Uh, you talk about getting cut from your high school basketball team. You're in good company. I got cut from my high school basketball team. We can have a whole separate podcast about dealing with that failure and identity, maybe in a different time in a different context. And by the way, I handled it very poorly. And it's one of the lessons I've learned in my life. <laughs> uh, I think I walked home and I was probably crying. I might've gotten some Popeye's chicken, which helped, but uh, it was, it was not a good day for me, <laughs> but a lot of learning about failure. And we're going to talk about failure. Mistakes, yeah. I promise yes. last piece yes. on, yeah. on this though, I'm struck for sports teams because they have this challenge of creating a competitive environment at practice and they're going at it and iron sharpens iron and making each other better. And then they get to a game where they have to learn how to collaborate and work together yeah. and maybe sub themselves out. So someone else can sub themselves in. And if you study the great sports teams, they have this competitive spirit, but they also have this capacity Collab to collaborate. Yeah. yeah. 
and so let's bring that to you and how how you see this work like how do you see a business or a hospital or a classroom have a competitive environment where they're focused on getting better and maybe going at each other and improving while also learning to make each other better and finding time to collaborate and maybe taking a step back rather than a step forward well it is not easy right all that you just described is is you know is incredibly challenging to do well and and very you know i think it's probably almost impossible to be perfect to do it perfectly but for 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 the sports situation where you know in practice and all that competing and wanting to get picked and wanting to be first string um, and then you've got a code switch, right? You've got to you've got to force yourself to remember. Okay, now we're in the game, and the competition's over there on the other side of the field, and we want to win. And suddenly, we're motivated. Put someone else in instead of us if they might be better positioned to do a good job, right? So it's you know it's the analog in the business world for me is it's context matters, right? And when when we the the better the more expert we get in any given field or domain the more we can effortlessly process context and take it into consideration and say okay is this a context where i should be going wild taking risks uh, you know behind closed doors and we're we're you know figuring out what works and what doesn't we expect most of it not to work or is this a context you know game time where we're um 100% focused on on doing our very best together you know in in real action here and 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 so this is you know this is cognitive this is you know emotional none of this it's not a recipe for chocolate chip cookies right it's it's really sophisticated thinking in action um i was a, a big fan of the work by don shern uh, on called the the book the reflective practitioner and and so much of his work, which was sort of you know the really good practitioners and he was studying individuals although he and Chris Arger studied management teams too but the really good practitioners engage with their phenomena in a different way than the ordinary practitioners it's like that they're always interested it's all they're always open to what it's teaching them you know if you're an architect drawing your plans fitting it into the site you're you're just deeply curious about what happens when you move this part over here. Or if you're a physician, you're tr just absolutely curious about what is the, what are the symptoms telling you? You know, there's a, there's a more, um, there's a more profound learning orientation. At, they don't just sit and learn and then go practice their craft. The act of practicing their craft is a learning process. You've used the word curious a couple of times and curiosity and collaboration are two elements that I'm probably most curious about is how do we cultivate curiosity and how do we cultivate collaboration? And there's a lot of other C words that I like too, but those are, those are two at the top of mind. At Harvard, do you find that the students are extremely curious, are extremely convicted? Like, what do you notice uh, at Harvard? You're surrounded by some of the minds that, mm -hmm. you know, in order to get there, they had to know some things and they had to test. They had to do well in school. They had to, they had to do well, right? But like where, I, I always am curious about when are we curious and when are we convicted? Like when do we share our knowledge and convictions and when are we curious and how do we actually have both of those? Because there's a time to be convicted and a time to be curious. At Harvard, I'd be curious to learn yeah. like, how, how kids... <laughs> handle their curiosity and their convictions and how they weigh both of those or even well, the 
the professors and the teachers that yeah. you're surrounded by. It's that true. Are, it's are a community. Nice. Yeah. Well, I don't think there is one Harvard type, right? I, I think there's as much heterogeneity uh, within Harvard as in as in many other places in, in society. Um, but I, I do think I'm gen I'm struck by the, the I think the the best students the sort of unusually good students are curious they're they're the ones who sort of um, maybe somehow they have internalized the message that the more they learn it's the growth mindset right the more they learn the um, the better they'll be. And so in because to be convicted, you know, to be convinced of something um, is to a certain degree to shut yourself off from disconfirming data. You don't want, you know, even if you think of yourself as a rational, a rational, you know, reasonable person, if you're truly convinced of a particular truth, you will cognitively be less able to see the disconfirming um, evidence. But I, I think to, the, the, to, to, to cultivate curiosity and collaboration, both cases, you have to truly believe that it's in your interest to do so. Right? I mean, curiosity is something that when practiced gives you benefits. It, fortunately, it also makes other people sort of like being with you more. So it's, it's not a pure, uh, you know, it's not a selfish act. Uh, but it's not a, an altruistic act either. It's a mutually beneficial state. And I think collaboration is the same. I mean, mo when do we effectively collaborate with others? You know, really listen to their ideas, really kind of, you know, sort things out together in interesting new ways when we understand that this benefits us too. Yeah, that's where I was just going to go is it goes back to the center of the universe thing that we talked about in the beginning is if I believe that you can actually make me better, I will be curious. If I believe I have something to learn from you and I have that humility, then I'm in a space to ask questions and learn. If right. I believe you don't have anything to teach me, I'm probably going to lack some curiosity. If I'm on a team and I believe passing you the ball will help our team perform better, perhaps I will make that pass. If I believe passing you the ball will lead to a turnover, maybe I'm just going to shoot my shot. Right. And right. So there's a belief yeah. that's underneath it as well. Yeah, and also it's, it's. I mean, it's a game is not a long, long term thing, but it, there's a, there's that moment where you want the ball, like you want to hang on to the ball, but you know, an hour from now you may regret it because you, it may make the difference between winning or losing the game. So there's this. It's still self interest, like oh, I want the ball, but actually, you know what? I want to win the game even more than I want the ball. I'm glad you brought regret into it. You talk about Dan Pink's work uh, around regret quite a bit, and his book was great. and And I implore people to check that out. Uh, but mistakes compared to failure, and okay. so that that is, I think, at the crux of uh, your latest book, and and sort of this idea that these are not necessarily the same thing. And I love that because I never, I always, I think, put them into the same bucket. And when you started to explain the difference and the distinction between them, I found that useful. So first, can you educate us a little bit? Sure. on Because I still, I still find myself going back to yep. putting them together, but give us the distinction between mistakes and failure. Yes. And, you know, I, I want this to be, it's not just words. Like I really think the distinction might matter to our 
you know, our emotions and our, our, our strategies. So a mistake is an unintended deviation from a known process, a known process or, or a known procedure. And a failure, I mean, a, a mistake clearly can cause a failure. Um, and a, a failure is an undesired outcome. A failure is more outcome, mistake is more process. And again, sometimes those two things are quite quite close together in time. But but why does that matter? Because you, there's no such thing as a mistake in new territory. Right? If you try something out that you've never tried before, you know, you get up, you, 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 I mean, you're a scientist, you run, you know, you run an experiment, hoping you're right, hoping to publish some big paper, um, but you're wrong. It's not a mistake, right? It's a mistake if you use the wrong chemical by mistake in your, in your experiment, but being wrong in new territory is never a mistake, but it is a failure, but a failure from which you can learn and learn fast and try something else now. And, and if we're trying to grow and really improve, is there an index that we should be over-indexing on failures or mistakes? And is there one that yeah. really gives us more data and information to then grow and improve? You know, it's it, failure, especially intelligent failure, undesired results of thoughtful experiments in new territory um, is absolutely part and parcel of growing and making progress in, in our lives and in sports uh, and and at work, whereas mistakes, um, and I'm going to qualify this in a moment, but but in theory, when we're vigilant, when we're at our best, we have we can avoid most mistakes. Um, that's not true, you know. The, the where where this gets a little fuzzy is where you're learning something new, like a new language, and. Um, it would be a little false to say, "Oh, you just made a failure, right? You made a mistake." In, you know, in the, you're not very fluent in the new language and you did the grammar wrong, right? That is technically a mistake because there is a right answer mm -hmm. uh, and it was unintended. Uh, but um, it's um, that is the kind of mistake that, in fact, is good for your growth. Right. So there's there are some things that we each learn. You know, you might pick up a new sport, golf, for example, right, where you will have you will have mistakes uh, that are quite like almost synonymous with failures. When we think of fear of failure, it's well documented and we we talk about it quite a bit in the business world and you do a really good job. You mentioned context earlier, right? Is it a consistent, is it a variable, is it novel? And then what's the failure type? Is it basic? Is it complex? Is it intelligent? And if people want to do a deeper dive into that, get her book and you can do a deeper dive into her explanations for, for those. But I'm struck by a mentor who once said that he had a fear of success. <laughs> And when I heard you say that you read the New Yorker on a on a Sunday and you're about to go into the to see your colleagues and they quote your your work, but they don't necessarily quote directly you. Charles doesn't necessarily say, here's Amy's perspective. It's here's what the literature says. Is there any like fear of success in that moment for you? What do you think of fear of success? I've had a hard time even understanding yeah. what people mean well, by that. I thought what he meant no, but I realize there's two two very different meanings. I thought what he meant when you first said it was, you know, that it, you can get sort of addicted to success and then stop taking risks, right? In along along the lines of the fixed mindset, right? If if I really 
um, think I've got to be successful at all times, I better be playing some easy games, right? Because I'm, otherwise I'm at risk for not succeeding. But probably that wasn't what he meant. Um, so the other thing that comes to mind for me when you say fear of success is um, fear of, you know, maybe the um, increased responsibility that comes with that, maybe the increased recognition that can come with that. And then maybe you won't be able to handle it properly um, or, or too much will be expected of you. Uh, yeah. I'm so even that, that would about, be frightening. I'm even wondering about like imposter syndrome. Like, Oh, I'm going to be found. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be found yeah. out now. Like, Oh, I'm gonna, totally. I'm now going to be discovered that I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And maybe there's a, a fear of that, but I remember when I heard that from that person, I was like, huh, not something I've really spent a lot of time thinking about for myself. I have thought about fear of like fame. Like I don't have a strong right. desire to have paparazzi outside my house no. And, no. and like live that life is not appealing or attractive, but that to me is fame. It's not necessarily no, it's being fame. afraid of, you know, if your book sells a million copies, like, are you afraid of that? I would, no. I, I don't really carry that, but I think some people no. do. And I, I need to learn more about it because uh, I don't think I fully understand what people mean when they say it. No, I think, I think it could mean so many different things, but the uh, imposter syndrome one is quite interesting, or at least that's possible. Like maybe that just puts you in a vulnerable, vulnerable position where people will then, you know, find out that you weren't really, you know, good. So we, we, we began our conversation talking about, uh, you know, your husband, George, we talked about, uh, <laughs> classrooms and campuses. We talked about our education system and our Duncan. I want to close by talking about Jack and Nick, who are your sons. And, <laughs> um, once again, the acknowledgement section is where we get to know who people are, yeah. uh, I think. And so you said uh, they inspire you with confidence. There's that word again, and commitment to making a better world. Mm. Uh, paint how they inspire you every day. Well, not every day because I don't get to see them every day anymore. But well, actually, just knowing they're there does in, inspire me. So my 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 son Jack um, has my older son has always been a just dogged problem solver. Right? He would be the one who would persist at two and a half with the big jigsaw puzzles that those the kids have, you know, and, and persist for forty five minutes, right, until he figured it out. And he was the same way and high school with math problems and so on, he turned his capacity, I think his capacity for learning and problem solving into studying engineering and environmental science. And he is um, working um, in a, a startup that's developing large greenhouses to, to grow food in a sustainable and, and local way. So, you know, it's, it's, he's sort of attacked it from, you know, from beginning to end, he's gotten, access to funding he's gotten access to suppliers for the equipment they need and builders and growers and it's it's remarkable to me his ability to manage a very large complex project um it's such a kind of organized uh and and effective way so and and he really cares i mean he cares about the um about sustainability about about uh, renewable sources of 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 food and energy and all the rest. So I, I find that um, quite inspiring. Um, my younger son, um, uh, Nick, is um, um, has, all, has, has always inspired me with his incredible 
emotional intelligence and just awareness of others, awareness of others. He had a an early and very thoughtful and mature sense of other people's needs and wants and and he cared. He seemed to care about all of that. Um and and um he's um thinking about a career in medicine. He's doing research in at the moment in in um it's called sort of aspects of care in the larger healthcare system that don't add value to our health, but but do cost money and don't and and um, he's so he's participating in research on that as a research assistant while he considers um, whether to go to medical school. And I bring up the kids because I've got two kids of my own. Um, they're they're younger than yours, and I remember when my son, my oldest, would fall. And hmm. he'd fall and we'd say, you're okay. Rather than, are you okay? Yes, we did that too. You're okay. And, and I'm struck because not all parents yeah. do that. Right. Some parents go, right. are you okay? Uh, what can I do? And yep, yep, yep. And, and then it it's sort of, you're conveying that this is some terrible thing and it shouldn't have happened. It's so funny. I've seen this out, you know, out in the grocery store or wherever. And you, you see that happen. You see a kid fall or a little kid, you know, fall, just a little fall, nothing big, right? And then they see the, instantly the parent is, like, are you okay? And then there's this gap, there's this little delay, and then they start crying, right? <laughs> Whereas and I, I wonder about that psychological safety to your point right. that we started with safe space for psychological safety is yeah. giving them the space to feel, to experience, but to pick themselves up and yeah, and, and not to be things. embarrassed by a fall, right? I think sometimes when the little kids are sort of Re- overreacted some they, there's a part where they realize people are looking at them and they're embarrassed and they've gotten the message that oh this is some bad thing and i i don't like it and i don't want it right and it's a metaphor for how we handle failures and how we handle when we don't feel great but to still have the space to know we've got their back you're okay we're with you um, yep. and, and go forward and um, I, I'm thinking as I leave this conversation about how I can continue to create the environment in my home where my kids do so respectfully, but do so with curiosity and and with collaboration in mind and with the ideas of, hey, we've got some boundaries to play in, but you're going to go explore and skim your knee and and you're going to go find your way. And I think it's one of the hardest things for, so for parents because we are wired to keep them safe. And yes. sometimes the thing we need to do to keep them safe is to expose them um, to some small, not safe environments. And you do a really good job of talking about this in the book of like micro, hey, make micro failures, make those a part of your culture. And and you use uh, companies like 3M as an example to talk about, hey, that's a micro failure that we're going to learn from, we're going to grow, we're going to develop. And I think parenting is just top of mind for where I am in my life and mm. my capacity to provide my kids with the space to have micro failures that are not yeah. significantly consequential to their physical or mental well-being is is something that I strive for that I'll make mistakes with, but I continue yeah. to keep top of mind. How old are your kids? They're almost eight and almost seven. So first and second right. grade. So it's like yeah. a beautiful age where they're learning really. so much and they are little people. Uh, and yep, they, are- they are, they are. It is about, I think you just said it perfectly. It's about creating the, you know, creating the safe conditions in which they can fail, right? Again, you don't want them running out to traffic after a lost ball. That would be bad, right? That would be a basic preventable failure, but you do, you don't want to then hover and make sure they never fall or never, you know, never experience a skin knee or never experience discomfort of any kind, because then when it inevitably does come in college or as an adult, 
it's crippling, right? It's devastating because they haven't developed those failure muscles. So Amy's last two books, Fearless Organization, Right Kind of Wrong. And then there's other books too, by the way. So uh, she's got Building the Future. She's got Teaming. She's got Teaming to Innovate, Extreme Teaming. There, there's there's plenty of content that you can consume uh, with Amy if you'd like to. Uh, the website is amycedmondson.com. We'll put those in the show notes. Is there a social media place that you like to connect I, with people on? I think LinkedIn is, uh, you know, I used to, well, LinkedIn is probably the the one I'm most enthusiastic about right now. So I'm on LinkedIn as well at Brian Levinson. Great. And then I guess it's, I still call it Twitter or X. I do too. Uh, I do too. Whatever, whatever it'll be tomorrow. I keep saying this, Yeah. whatever it is tomorrow, I'm at Brian Levinson and, and we're there for now. And then all of these conversations. So and I'm there too. Yeah, yeah so we'll, but we'll, I'm not sure how to feel about that right now, right? But it's a bizarre space. It's it is a bizarre space. I mean, not my feed isn't bizarre, but I hear on the news that there are very bizarre feeds in on on. Well, on it's the, an interesting yeah. concept to map. I would be interested if you ever speak to them around psychological safety, and they're creating a community. And how do they create a community that is yeah. psychologically safe? I mean, it's, and respectful. Um, I did speak to them, but years, I mean, years, you know, several, like three years ago or two years ago before the current. Oops, I do have another meeting. Oh, right. Okay, just started two minutes ago. <laughs> we're we're going to close. Uh, you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Amy, thank you so much for coming on and, and good luck with your next meeting. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. But respect to me is something, um, maybe it's, 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 it also includes being realizing that you are not the center of the universe, that, that, you know, that you have a valid point of view and a valid set of experiences in your life that, that are, have, you know, have taught you a lot, given you some maybe strong views about things, um, but those views are necessarily incomplete. And you are, you truly respect the other's ability to have different views because they've had different experiences. They've grown up in different environments. And your desire to learn more about that, I believe is a form of respect.